0: Welcome to the Religion Unplugged podcast. I'm Megan Clark. I'm the managing editor of Religion Unplugged. And here with us today is Dr. Scott Kenworthy. Dr. Kenworthy is a professor in the Department of Comparative Religion at Miami University. He his research interests focus on the history and thought of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, particularly in modern Russia. So Today we're gonna talk about uh, what's happening in Russian Orthodoxy, the history of Russian Orthodoxy, how it fits into global Orthodoxy, and of course, understanding some of the implications of the war in Ukraine. Dr. Kenworthy's most recent book is co-authored with Alexander Agajanian. It's called Understanding World Christianity, Russia. And his first book was The Heart of Russia, Trinity Sergius, Monasticism and Society After 1825 which won the 2010 Frank S. and Elizabeth D. Brewer Prize of the American Society of Church History. He's also currently writing a biography of Tikhon, who became patriarch of the Russian church at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, which is forthcoming with Oxford University Press. Thank you. Um, So mainly I wanna talk about your recent book um, about understanding Christianity in Russia So you write that Russia has the fourth largest Christian population in the world and the largest in Europe, but a lot of books about world Christianity hardly feature Russia. And books about Russian history hardly feature Orthodoxy in its history. And so your argument is that this has led to a mischaracterization of the Russian Orthodox Church in several ways, but for example, one of them being that the church is the handmaiden of the state, Um, So I thought first we could talk about some of those misunderstandings in the West that have been popularized about Russia. Um, Maybe you can name some of them and maybe first explain why is it a mischaracterization to say that the Russian Orthodox Church is a tool of the government.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, So there's... um... Let's see where to start. So it's. Uh, I would say that in terms of that particular mischaracterization, because as you mentioned, there are there are numerous ones, and we can come back and talk about some of the others too. But in terms of the relationship of the of the Russian Church to the state, um, the first point is that it has changed dramatically over the centuries. Um, and in the Muscovite period, or in the first centuries, it was anyway subordinate to the. Patriarch of Constantinople before it became autocephalous, um, and even in medieval Muscovy, there was, of course, close relations between church and state, just as there were in Western Europe, um, the difference being perhaps that um, until the Reformation, the, the Catholic Church was something transnational, so there was not sort of the coterminous identity between nation and church, um, and state and church as there was in Russia, but relations, I think, were not dramatically different. Um, the the one that people always point to as the moment when the church was particularly subordinated to the state uh, was the reforms of Peter the Great um, in the beginning of the uh, 18th century. Um, and when, you know, usually the way you often read in textbooks is as if uh, Peter the Great made the church a department of state and appointed a lay bureaucrat as its head of the Holy Synod, um, which was the body that replaced the Patriarchate. Um, and really, what Peter did was to create, he did eliminate the Patriarchate, right? And I think he did not want competition with his power as being at the top. But rather than making the church a, a department of state, it was kind of like a parallel structure. You had the state that was headed by the Senate. And this church that was its own separate bureaucracy; they never received state salaries or anything like this. That was headed by the synod, the Holy Synod, uh, and Peter's model for um, for making this reform was Protestant Western Europe. You know, so, in in many depictions, this you know extreme subordination of the state um, that supposedly happens in Russia, as if this is somehow um, distinctively Russian or different from anybody else. Uh, Actually, what Peter was trying to do was make Russia more like Europe, right, Um, rather than this being something uh, exceptional about Russia. And even after that, um, you know, church leaders were, they were trying to pursue the interests of the church, uh, which doesn't mean that they didn't see that as working in a cooperative way with the state Uh, and certainly most of the bishops especially uh, supported the monarchy. Um, But there were moments of tension um, when the state was pushing its agenda and the church resisted and tried to push its own thing. Um, And those tensions reached enough of a point of, of exacerbation that by the time the monarchy collapsed in 1917, the church didn't even come to defend the monarchy. Right? It had been pretty frustrated. It had wanted to hold a church council and, and carry out more extensive reforms, uh, sort of revitalize um, church life and everything else. And the, and the government kept stopping it, uh, prevented it from doing so. Um, and so the, they let the, in a, in a sense, the, the church was not all that set to see the monarchy go, and then immediately set to work to, to hold this long awaited church council. And then, of course, in the Soviet period, um, the, uh, the Soviet regime, which was a uh, you know, militant atheist um, ideology, literally tried to eradicate religion altogether um, in the Soviet Union. And this progressed uh, through various stages in the Soviet period from um, initially this sort of legal disestablishment uh, of the church um, to confiscating its property, um, to uh, arresting and harassing the hierarchy, until by the 1930s under Stalin, there was an all out effort to literally eradicate the church and um, not only as an institution, but even believers as well as clergy. And tens of thousands, nobody knows exactly how many, um, but tens of thousands of people were either executed or sent to the gulags simply because of their faith, um, which is uh, something that most people in the West are totally unaware of. Um, Stalin totally changed course during World War II because uh, even before the war broke out, they'd done a census in 1937 before the terror started and discovered that still over 50% of the Russian population believed in God. Um, so once the war broke out, Stalin uh, decided he needed the support of, of everybody to fight the Nazis, and so they totally reversed the policy towards the church. But then once Stalin died, um, there was a return to um, not the kind of persecution, um, all-out persecution that had preceded World War II, but a very strong effort to, um, to control the church um, and to discourage people from engaging in religion. And there's often this image in the West, this is another one of those sort of misnomers, is that the church in the Soviet period, all the clergy were just, you know, agents and some Cossacks. Um, and while it's certainly true that the highest levels of the church administration um, had to cooperate with the regime, Um, But it gets a lot more complicated, as I've discovered in my research, when you get lower down, you know, to what's actually happening at the grassroots level. And then finally, uh, once the Soviet Union collapsed and there was this kind of um, void of, you know, there's no more communist ideology, but the communists had made such an effort to eradicate all other forms of, you know, identity. Um, that there was a sort of, you could say, a national identity crisis in Russia in the 1990s, and the church made a concerted effort to, um, you know, recapture Russian society, to become, once again, a a shaping, uh, play a shaping role in Russian society. Uh, Patriarch Alexei, the first patriarch in the post-Soviet period, did this through trying to rebuild the church itself, which, of course, was um, really weak, um, thanks to the, the Soviet um, constraints against the church. Um, he did not have particularly close relations with President Yeltsin, um, nor really even, for that matter, in, uh, under President Putin's first two terms. Um, so the person who has really brought the Russian state um, very close to, uh, you know, to the church is Patriarch Kirill. Um, and this has been a kind of deliberate choice and strategy on his part. But to kind of project back from that and, and assume it's always been that way, or it would inevitably be that way, is actually to miss the point that this was a deliberate uh, choice and strategy. And even there, I think that Kirill's primary interest was, again, to sort of further the the church's role and influence in society. He hoped that by Allying it to uh, Putin's rebuilding of Russian society, um, that if the church was a you know Russian Orthodoxy is a central part of Russian identity, then that would that would bolster the role of the church. But um, in many ways, it seems to be backfiring. The gamble <laughs> it may have paid for a while, but um, but yeah. You know, so would you say
0: longer. that Patriarch Kirill's strategy seems to be to use the government as a tool of
1: the church? You know, it goes both ways, exactly. I think that the church tries to use the state and the state tries to use the church. And as long as that mutual (laughs) um, using, mutual exploitation is beneficial, they go along with it. Um, But the problem is today uh, that, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that Kirill can't see that what's happening in Ukraine is going to end up being incredibly damaging for the russian orthodox church but it's sort of too late for him to turn back and to be able to distance himself from putin or to say anything that diverges from the party line so he he made the alliance in order to strengthen the the church but in the end um effectively he has kind of made himself into a a tool of the state
0: yeah, I'm curious what you think would be the impacts of the war in Ukraine so far on the Russian Orthodox Church in terms of dividing it and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in terms of uniting them again. Um, do you think that's what's happening or would you say that um, you know this petition going around of about 300 priests in the Russian Orthodox Church is very tiny and not likely to do anything? without higher up bishops signing it as well?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So first of all, in terms of Ukraine itself, uh, of course, the um, uh, ecumenical patriarch, Bartholomew of Constantinople um, granted autocephaly to the Ukrainian uh, church in 2019, which was not recognized by Moscow. And we can talk more about that uh, later on because it's a complicated um, series of events that led to that. But in effect, you could say the the Ukraine, the church, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine is divided now between between the Autocephalous Ukrainian church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that belongs to the Moscow Patriarchate still. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh recently many of the bishops in the church that still is part of the moscow patriarchate have ceased to commemorate kirill in the liturgy which means you know it's kind of symbolic that as if they're not seeing him as their (laughs) as the head of their church anymore it doesn't signify a formal break yet but it is clearly a sign of protest and um, the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, of the Moscow Patriarchate, Metropolitan Manufri of Kiev, has made very explicit statements condemning the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine in language that would get him arrested if you were in Russia, right? Um, and so it's, it's pretty hard for me to envision how unless Russia really succeeds in conquering Ukraine, uh, which will be a whole different story, but it's hard to see how that will happen. Um, it's hard to see how in an independent Ukraine, the anybody will want to have allegiance to the Moscow Patriarchate anymore. So it seems like part of the motivation, maybe part of the reason why Kirill was supporting Russia's intervention in Ukraine to begin with was to somehow shore up the Ukrainian church for the Moscow Patriarchate, and it seems like the exact opposite, is inevitably going to happen at this point. In terms of what happens within Russia itself, um, that's pretty hard to predict. So, um, because the, there's such a, a suppression of voices going on in Russia, um, I mean, literally, it's uh, you get arrested if you criticize the government, if you if you say the word "war" or uh, "or invasion" um, and uh, and censorship going on, so that you know we don't really have any way of knowing how many people are in support of the church and how many people, I mean, sorry, in support of Kirill's position supporting the war, or who are critical of that. Um, it's noteworthy that. I think as far as i know there's only been like two sort of popular preachers who have really explicitly endorsed russia's actions in ukraine um so you have the 300 or so nearly 300 who have have spoken against it you have one priest who was actively preaching it against it who got arrested uh as a consequence um you have the two that are clearly um supporting but the rest is silence. So we just have no real way of knowing what's going on. Um, there are some websites, I think the most important one is is Pravmir, it's called, um, Pravmir.ru, which, you know, is doesn't seem to be posting anything that really favors what Russia is doing or justifying it. And they are posting um, news stories about the fact that there's you know, 3 million refugees who have fled to Western Europe, right? So if you're a thinking person, you have to wonder why are there three, if it's a small, you know, special military operation that's only in the Donbass, which is what Putin tells people is what's happening, then why are there 3 million Ukrainians who have fled to Western Europe, right? So reading between the lines, you see sort of faint signals of, of dissent, I don't assume it would be enough to, um, to you know, cause a schism in the in the Russian Orthodox Church, but what it may hopefully, uh, well, you know, I would say at some point um, lead to, um, you know, Kitty Hill's retirement and uh, a kind of internal reckoning with the position that the church has taken. The other significant thing is that, you know, what happens with the churches that are subordinate to moscow that are um outside of russia so i don't just mean um in uh ukraine but for example the russian church outside of russia um there's a uh the, the churches of the russian tradition that are in western europe that you may have seen the news about the the parish in amsterdam that is subordinate to the moscow Patriarchate that has declared it no wants no longer wants to be in the Moscow Patriarchate's jurisdiction that wants to transfer itself to the um, Patriarch of Constantinople, right? So the fallout globally um, uh, you know, might end up being significant.
0: Well, what, let's talk about the history of global orthodoxy and how the Russian Orthodox Church fits into it, because I know that would be really helpful background for people to understand the Orthodox schism that happened in 2019. And I think most listeners are probably decently familiar with this, um, you know, basic history that we see repeated usually in every media article about the schism, that, you know, Vladimir baptized the Rus and um, spread Christianity among the Rus people, and this importance of Kiev to the Russian people. But I wanted to go back a little bit more to understand, you know, we know that the Greek missionaries introduced Orthodoxy to the Slavs and like the Cyrillic alphabet is named after Saint Cyril. Um, But how did Imperial considerations factor into Vladimir's Christian conversion? And how were these conversions similar and different than the way Western Christianity spread? I think that would be first helpful to understand the differences between like Catholicism at the time and Orthodoxy.
1: Yeah, I think in terms of uh, you know Christianity usually spreads in one of two ways. One is a sort of popular missionaries come in and it kind of works from the from the ground up, as it were. And other times you convert the the ruler and uh, and then he converts the rest of the people. Uh, and so that's obviously what happened in in the case of Kievan and Rus when uh, Vladimir chose Christianity. But similar things happened in uh, in. The Catholic world, too. This is not, uh, by any means, distinct or exclusive um, to uh, the Russian case or the, I, I shouldn't say Russian case because they were not, it's not Russia yet, um, but to the, the Eastern Slavs or the Slavs in general. So I think the patterns are actually in Eastern Europe and Western Europe similar. The, the main differences were that by receiving Christianity from, from Constantinople, from the Greeks, instead of from the Latins. They were able to get it in, in the Slavic language with an alphabet and um, things like that, which obviously has had significant impact.
0: Yeah, and you are writing that the, um, a big element of Russian identity in the Middle Ages is the way that they contrasted themselves, obviously with the Mongols, like to the East, but also to Western Christians and the Catholics who they saw as an even bigger threat to orthodoxy than people who are not Christian. Um, So, I mean, briefly, you know, there was the split with the Catholics in 1054, but then in the 1400s, when Constantinople asked for help from the West is when, um, you know, they felt under threat from the Ottoman Empire and they showed this willingness to negotiate a reunion with Rome. And then the Russians rejected that reunion and declared autocephaly for like self-governance. 1448. This sounds very familiar to us with the Orthodox Church of Ukraine so I wonder if you could compare those two events uh, in 2019 and in 1448 and how can we understand them as similar and different and also put into context the other um, churches that declared autocephaly and how did that happen if they didn't happen with the council um, it sounds very similar to the ecumenical patriarch declaring the Orthodox Church of Ukraine autocephalous.
1: Yeah. So uh, the first thing I would say is that as the church developed in the, let's say, in the first thousand years, in the first millennium, um, it uh, was really regionally defined. That is, you had the major, you know, what the Orthodox would consider patriarchates' uh, territories. So you had in, in the 5th century, it was defined as the Pentarchy, which was Rome was the the first one as the bishop of essentially what we think of as Western Europe. Um, the Patriarch of Constantinople was the Patriarch of Asia Minor and you know Greece. The uh, Patriarch of, of Antioch was the Patriarch of Syria and the East. And the Patriarch of Alexandria was the, the lead bishop of Egypt and Africa, as they continue to depend. And so it was really, um, you know, in an empire and regionally defined. And it was only in much later centuries that the church became sort of more nationally defined. And this has been a, a kind of ongoing struggle. So the patriarch of Constantinople used to have Subordinate to it, all these various churches that are now independent, including the Russian Church, which was effectively the earliest one to get permanent autocephaly, um, but also the Greek, uh, the the Serbs, the Romanians, the Bulgarians, and so on. They were all under under uh, Constantinople until the nineteenth century. And so, while on the one hand you have a kind of imperial or transnational, more ter- geographical definition of the church. Um, the more modern conception of the church is a national one, where each nation has its own independent church. Um, And that was really especially a process of of the 19th century. But Russia is sort of somewhere in between. The Russian church is a national church, but it was also historically defined as a kind of imperial church, especially, let's say, before 1917, um, where subordinate to the Russian church were a lot of Orthodox Christians who are not Russians, not only Belarusians, Ukrainians, Moldovans, Georgians, um, and other ethnicities, even Orthodox Christians living in the United States. So it was the Russian Orthodox Church was a kind of transnational church, and so with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was a kind of question: which way would it go? Would uh, would the Russian Orthodox Church still be a transnational church that would claim as its Jurisdiction, all of the former post-Soviet territories, or would the model of what happened in the in the Balkan churches um, follow suit, where where the new nations would get their own independent churches? And one of the issues is that there's really no clear process, procedure, definition of how autocephaly is achieved. <laughs> um in uh, or granted in the Orthodox Church. So um, in 1448, the Russians saw that um, the patriarch and bishops of the you know in Constantinople had subordinated themselves or unified themselves with Rome. So they just unilaterally broke with Constantinople um, and declared themselves to be autocephalous. And that was it. Was decades before Constantinople finally accepted that and uh, and sort of recognized that the Russian Church was now autocephalous among the Balkan churches in the in the 19th century. As as Greece and Serbia and Romania and Bulgaria became independent nations from the Ottoman Empire, again it was you know in some cases they the nations became independent and the churches declared themselves um autocephalus and it was not recognized by the patriarch of constantinople immediately in other cases there was more of a process of negotiation that went on until finally um constantinople would grant them autocephaly the the biggest struggle which again took half a century finally to reconcile was bulgaria it took a long time for for after Bulgarian Church declared itself autocephalous, that the the Patriarch of Constantinople um, recognized it. So again, the question was sort of posed. In the case of Moldova, the question was: Would the Moldovan Church reunite with the Romanian Church, which it had been part of in in the interwar period? Um, but the question for Ukrainians was: um, Would we have our own autocephalous Church, like? romanians bulgarians and serbs or would we remain part of the moscow Patriarchate? and when it came to the the declaration of uh the patriarch of constantinople's declaration of autocephaly in 2019 again it comes to the the sort of contention of who has the authority to grant autocephaly so the patriarch of constantinople asserts that only he has the right to grant autocephaly, whereas the Russians, uh, the position of the Russian church is that the mother church, as it were, has the right to grant autocephaly to its daughter churches, if it so chooses. And so from the perspective of the Russians, for the Patriarch of Constantinople to intercede, or interject itself into the Ukrainian case, they say that that's sort of out of bounds. It was, you know, the Patriarch of Constantinople doesn't have the authority to do that. Um and these are these are seriously unresolved issues um in the Orthodox world today. I think many people had hoped that the Council on Crete if it took place in twenty sixteen would address these issues and that maybe the Ukrainian situation would have been resolved had the patriarchs of Constantinople and Moscow have been able to actually sit down and, and work it out. Um, but since the Russians pulled out of Crete um, and didn't go, then the patriarch of Constantinople said, well, you lost your chance to uh, have a say in it. We're gonna move ahead you know, without you kind of thing.
0: And what were the reasons for pulling out just briefly? <laughs>
1: The process for planning the um, council in 2016, I mean, this had been something in the the works for, for decades. And that there was a series of documents or statements or positions that the churches, that they were supposed to agree on, that were kind of already circulated beforehand. And some people objected to the way some of these things were formulated. And so instead of coming to the council and sort of debating them, they were like, well, we're not gonna accept these things uh, a priori, so we're just not coming. I think that was that was part of it.
0: So it seems like a lot of these disputes over autocephaly are also wrapped up in um, having authority or ownership of a particular monastery or holy relics. And so in the case of Kiev with the monastery of the caves, how important is that particular physical church and relics in the minds of the russian orthodox hierarchs is that um you know a huge concern because it does look like russia may not win this war and you know would that end up going to this maybe reunited ukrainian church
1: yeah i mean it's uh that that Monastery, obviously, as a, as a holy spot is certainly very important, but it's it's important in ways that uh, you know, Kiev is important itself as kind of symbolically for in, in the Russian mind as being, you know, the, the baptismal font from which we come and the mother of Russian cities and uh, in Russian language, right? That's the way they phrase things um but the way this always comes across of course is if that should somehow be subordinated to moscow right it's not its own thing it's like well it's it's our mother and so therefore we should you know keep it as ours um so uh obviously it's contested for both the monastery itself and and you Sort of Ukrainian church is very contested for symbolic reasons and is seen as um, you know, if Russia loses that and its influence there that will be very damaging for Russia and for the Russian church is also is important to keep in mind that um, at least before 2018 of the parishes of the Moscow Patriarchate some about 30 percent of them were actually in Ukraine <laughs> right so while russian the Russian Orthodox Church claims to be the largest Orthodox Church in the world, and of course it is, it would stand to lose a huge chunk <laughs> of what it is if uh, if the Ukrainian Church becomes autocephalous, and that's part of, I think, what's at stake about why they don't want to see that happen.
0: I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this sentiment that I've heard um, among some Russians and people who, go to churches with the Church Slavonic that are somehow, you know, historically tied to the Russian Orthodox Church, there's sometimes a sentiment that the Russian Church is the only Orthodox Church that has remained pure. And of course, this idea that Moscow is the third Rome. And so I I wonder if you think the autocephaly of the Russian Church caused russians to look inward more in a way um and cut themselves off from cooperation with other christian neighbors like at the same time imperialism developed so uh what do you think did this sentiment that we are the only true church help isolate russia while driving a sort of new nationalism would that be a proper way to frame it
1: huh that's yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, certainly there was that kind of moment when, you know, in the 15th century when the Greeks uh, united with Rome during the Council of Florence and the Russians said no. And that kind of left this sense in the church in Moscow that um, uh, that we are the only true church uh, and that the, you know, the Greeks have kind of, sold out somehow or tainted their orthodoxy so that was part of let's say muscovite identity but it was not so strong that um you know when it finally came the point of elevating uh the russian church to have the status of a and um at the end of the sixteenth century that they didn't have the Patriarch of Constantinople come and do it, right? Um so they, they still recognize that um that Constantinople was was the you know number one church in the in the Orthodox world. And I would say that especially in, in Imperial Russia in the you know eighteenth and nineteenth century that um it didn't so much have that kind of we're the only true Orthodox there was there was, you know, the the contacts between Russia and the rest of the Orthodox world were actually quite rich. And, um, you know, sometimes there was contestation between Russians and Greeks, uh, for example, in the Syria, the Patriarchate of Antioch and things like this. Uh, but nevertheless, there were a lot of contacts, and I don't think that that attitude was quite so prevalent. What it seems like is in this moment of the 1990s of this kind of crisis of identity that people have turned back to that, this kind of ideology as a way of shaping a new identity today. So it's not like it's always been that way, but rather people are sort of deliberately choosing to return to that particular moment in in Russian development. But yeah, I have definitely, I mean, there's this kind of contestation going on in the Orthodox world, um, and it has ramifications for the whole Orthodox world. It's certainly not just going on in Russia, but whereas the Patriarch of Moscow presents himself as the defender of traditional values and the kind of conservative position of Orthodoxy and so on, the Patriarch of Constantinople... Malgor labeled the Green Patriarch because of his concern for uh, the environment and developing a kind of echo theology, and his concern for you know poverty and conflict resolution and things like this. Right, you say he's very different poles within Orthodoxy, and that that one assumed by the Patriarch of Constantinople is much more open to dialogue with Western Christians and with you know west in general and western modernity and things like this whereas the um position of the that has been assumed by the moscow Patriarchate, again especially under Kirill, um has been to define itself against the west and define itself as you know russia as the bearer of true christian values and Uh, The West has sort of abandoned them and has given itself over to, you know, this decadence and, um, you know, all this kind of stuff with gay rights and all these things. And then there's this kind of contingent of people, especially in the United States, conservative Christians, whether Orthodox or not, who find that language very appealing um, and actually has gained supporters, um, at least up until, until this present moment.
0: Yeah, um, definitely. It's really fascinating to watch, especially um, Americans that have been swayed by this that kind of rhetoric coming from Russia and the partnerships that have developed as well among even American evangelicals, um, you know, who are very different than Orthodox Christians. Um, but uh, one last question I wanted to ask you is, um, you write in your book, I think it's in the introduction, in the very beginning, about how all of this tension between Russia and the West um, after the Soviet Union collapsed was not inevitable. And actually there's, you know, potentially the West could have had closer ties with Russia and vice versa on some shared values like their legacies of Christianity and even democracy. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that other possibility that didn't happen. (laughs) What do you think could have the Cold War sooner and reframed um, the American understanding of Russia and the Russian understanding of the West um, to prevent this kind of anti-Western rhetoric that we're seeing today come out of Russia.
1: Yeah, a lot of the, the rhetoric that comes out of Russia and Russians' justification for what they're doing in Ukraine is, is the threat of NATO expansion, for example. And I will say from the outset that I do not think that that is justification for what Russia is doing in Ukraine at all, Um, so to make that clear. But on the other hand, I think there may be a point that, you know, the sort of the way that the United States treated Russia and regarded Russia in the 1990s and the 2000s, the expansion of NATO further and further towards Russia, but excluding Russia, was you know, implicitly suggesting we still regard you as a potential enemy and as a threat. Um, When I think in those early stages, there was no reason for that. There was no need for that. Now, people may disagree with that. I have colleagues, we we always argue about this. And they say, Russia is always, you know, imperial. It has this imperial complex and will always expand. And you have to take these precautions to curb it. Maybe that's correct, but that's not, you know, the way I have traditionally viewed it and not the experience I had of when I was living in Russia in the 90s and and 2000s and the way that I, my interactions with people. So on the one hand, there was this expansion of NATO and this sort of implicit regarding Russia as a, as a potential threat, this effort that the United States engaged in to be involved in the politics of places like Ukraine and Georgia and so on to turn them away from Russia, to undercut Russian influence, which clearly was um, was going on, while at the same time sort of treating Russia dismissively. Like Russia's voice didn't matter, it's a has-been country. Um, and we can, uh, you know, bomb Serbia without taking the Russian consideration in mind in 1999. We can invade Iraq without you know, caring what the rest of the world thinks. Again, something that Russia was was profoundly opposed to. And this kind of repeated sending the message that we regard you as a has-been country and don't take you seriously, but, you know, potentially you're a threat, so we're going to guard against you, um, was not necessary and created a lot of resentment in Russia and helped gain the support for Putin to have this more combative stance towards the West that has been in evidence, let's say, since his famous Munich speech of 2007. So, you know, in the 90s, I, everybody that I spoke with in Russia, you know, when I was living there was they were so eager to kind of be a part of of the West, really, and totally open for it and didn't see any reasons for conflict at all um that sort of soured especially that bombing of of former Yugoslavia in 1999 was a real turning point where where a sense of actually at the end of the day the United States although they talk about human rights and and diplomacy they use force instead of exhausting diplomatic means and they dismiss you know Russia's involvement in it uh, because they were trying to negotiate some kind of diplomatic solution um, sort of turn people, but then nine eleven was another moment where the United States could have, you know, really joined in an alliance with Russia um, for, you know, I don't want to say the war on terror, but for for you know some kind of. There was really no reasons for hostilities, um, and the story could have played out very differently, I think, from then. And I think this has been mistakes, you know, by both. Democratic and Republican presidents uh, since Clinton and George W. Bush and so on. Every every one of them has made missteps that have caused or exacerbated the hostilities between Russia and the United States, um, which isn't to say that Russia hasn't done its own missteps, right? It's a two-way street, but I think um, some of the arrogance of the United States uh, after the Cold War, like, we can basically dictate terms to the world that this has has caused a lot of resentment in places like Russia and and also China that um, is coming back uh, to uh, to haunt us, I think, in some ways. Again, none of that being in any way a justification for what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Um, But I think we also need to take a serious look at, uh, uh, you know, the way, uh, whatever, the way we conduct ourselves in the world and think more critically about it.
0: Sure. Yeah. So would you say that, um, you know, some of the Russian disinformation that has come out um, has elements of truth and and insofar as the this perspective has been shaped by what you're talking about, this history of seeing the U.S. as not fulfilling some of these promises?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been watching this develop over the, you know, really for the past 20 years. Um, gradually, um, to the point now where it just seems like it's kind of a complete distortion of reality. But it started gradually, and it started, you know, especially in the 2000s, by exploiting elements that were true Um, and, uh, and, you know, sort of twisting them in a special way. But it, it, you know, made them credible.
0: Well, thank you so much. This has been really, really educational. Um, I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. And I do recommend his book um, called Understanding World Christianity, Russia. And so I understand there's other volumes as well um, in that series, um, but you've contributed to the Russia one. And then you also have another book coming out um, soon. Do you want to just briefly talk about that um, book that's forthcoming?
1: Sure. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a biography of Patriarch Tikhon. So Patriarch Tikhon was elected head of the Russian Orthodox Church um, uh, basically the week after the Bolsheviks seized power. So he became kind of the point person between, between the church and the Bolshevik regime, which wanted to um, secularize Russia and uh, the Soviet Union in a, a rather violent way, forceful way. Um, he has a very interesting life up until that moment as well, including he was the uh, sole Orthodox bishop of North America for um, years at the turn of the century and did many important things about in Orthodoxy in the United States um, and Canada. Yeah, so it's kind of this, but it's also, so it's partially that story and also the story of his, uh, how he tries to navigate the church's survival in the midst of this hostility of the, of the Bolshevik regime. So I've I'm, I'm, uh, been struggling to get funding to finish the writing of the book. Uh, it's now under contract, and, and I have some funding for next year, not as much as I would like because <laughs> I'm ready to finish writing. Um, but uh, that's where it's at.
0: All right. Maybe one of our listeners will hook you up to some funding, and that would be great because <laughs> we want to read this book, so we hope mm. that it comes out. Thanks. Thank you so much again. Um, And if anyone wants to read more um, on some of the stories we've reported from Ukraine and um, Lithuania recently, you can read them at religionunplugged.com. Thanks so much for listening.
1: The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.